Good morning. Uh, I want to take you back to 1987. Are you ready? 1987, okay? Some of you were here, some of you were not. But 1987, I was a sophomore in high school, South Windsor High School, South Windsor, Connecticut. Um, I would go into my class, my science class. The class was titled HAP, Human Anatomy and Physiology, where you know the bones and the muscles and all that kind of stuff and how everything goes together. And so I would go into the class, and it was like a lab class, so there were two seats at one table. And I would sit there next to my buddy named Steve Shaker, and we would sit next together. Every time he would come, he'd put his books on the table, he'd put his glasses case off to the side, he would put his glasses on the table, and he would never use his glasses. I would sit back there going, I'm having problems seeing the, hold on, chalkboard. Can I get a holler? Amen. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, we also had shag carpet back then too, so anyway. So here, here, here we are, I'm sitting there and I cannot see the board. Steve's got glasses on the table. I'm like, I don't think I need glasses, but I'm really having trouble. He's not using them. Steve, can I borrow your glasses? Yeah, sure. I put them on, I could not believe my eyes. I could see. I was like, that periodic table's got more numbers than I ever thought possible. I could see, I could see everything this past weekend. We were getting ready to go to a banquet, an adoption banquet in, in, uh, in, in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. My brother-in-law runs this ministry. and I could not find my glasses as we were getting ready to go. And I'm driving. So I said, well, I'll just wear my sunglasses. They're prescription. So I wore my sunglasses all the way there. Here's the problem. When I got out of the car, I didn't think it would look right if I wore my sunglasses into the banquet. So I'm sitting in the banquet, and I'm like, if you're right next to me, I know exactly who you are. But if you're like far away, I don't know who you are. I couldn't see. Couldn't see. The whole night, I could not see. I couldn't even see the speaker who was speaking. I heard something but didn't see something. Here's the deal right now. It was very difficult to focus on what I was looking at without my glasses enabled, unable to see. And I think really what we're doing right now is we're trying to help us to get in focus as a church and really understand the missional mandate that we have to go and make disciples. And so what we've done over the next three weeks, we've got this, ser- this message series titled focus because we want to focus on on who we are and where we're going and how we're going to get there it's really important that we do that when we look at the text and we look at the bible the bible is very very clear about what we should be about it says we should be about making disciples and so our missional mandate is no different than any other church that believes the bible and wants to teach the bible that that is our missional mandate sometimes you can look at the scripture over decisions that you need to make like you might be faced with a job situation. Should I leave Cisco and go to SAS? Should I leave SAS and go to Cisco? Maybe there's a move that's up on the plane. Should I go to New York City or should I go to Colorado? Well, I would definitely say go to Colorado. But if you look in the text in the Bible, it doesn't say go to Colorado. It gives you principles to help make those decisions. But when we take a look at, hey, what is the missional mandate of the church? It is crystal clear that's make disciples and you can't fail at that. And we shouldn't fail at that. And we need to do a better job of that, and we are. And so this, over the next three weeks, we want to make sure that we get focused on doing just what God's called us to do. And so we spent almost seven months crafting this this statement. And, And this statement is specific to us because we recognize that there are churches in various geographic regions that they might accomplish making disciples or go about it a different way, and that's okay. That's the freedom that we have in Christ. I remember when I first started this journey of being a part of a new church in a new city, 
I was there with the guy at a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. He said, I'm planting a cowboy church in western North Carolina. And sure enough, that's what he's doing right now. And there's places that are rural church that they're, they're going to, real different in country than, than, than our setting. But here's what we recognize. We recognize that God has sovereignly positioned and placed us in the burbs, right smack dab in the middle of the suburbs. And he's brought the world to us. And so we have this missional mandate, go make disciples, specifically speaking, how is Northwest going to go about that? And I'm really glad you asked. <laughs> so we've got this statement that we hope will help shape us and focus us on running in the right direction for the fame of his name, not ours. And so I want us to say this together. Okay, we're going to put it up on the screen right now. You have our, our, our mission statement that we have, and I want us to say this together. Instead of saying Northwest Community Church, we'll say NWCC like I wrote that, okay? So we're, are you ready? We're going to say this together. NWCC will glorify God and make disciples by passionately guiding generations through gospel transformation one home at a time. Do I want you to know that? Yes. Do I want you to live that? Absolutely. Do we want you to live this out in your own sphere, in your own home, in your own community, in your own neighborhood? That is absolutely what we want. More than anything in the world is for this statement to be true about you individually and for it to be true about us collectively. And so here's what we're going to do in order to get us there to unpack this a little bit is we're going to jump into Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And this text is going to really help us unpack the part of our statement that says passionately guiding generations. That's the part we're going to talk about this morning. Passionately guiding generations. What does this mean? What does it look like? How can we accomplish this? So we'll simply not be able to cover, uncover everything right today. But I hope that God will use this text and the message to help spur us on to love God deeper, to, to good works in our community, and our homes. And so we're going to take a look at Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, 4 through 9. Before I get there, I want to make sure you understand the book of Deuteronomy is part of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. It was written to give people the law so that they know what they should do, what life of obedience looks like, and the warning against a life of disobedience. And so that's where we have the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, specifically Deuteronomy. It was written by Moses, and again, the purpose is to show, what is, show Israel what it looks like, a life of obedience, and warn them of a life of disobedience. Our text this morning has the, 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 the label of being called the Shema, and that's a Hebrew word for listen or hear. And so it basically is the foundational text on the mission of God for the family of God. And I need to make sure that I identify the family of God. First and foremost, this text is very important to you, whatever your address is, wherever the, whatever roof you gather under. This is a text that is so important for you, whether you are married, whether you are single, whether you are a single mom, whether you are, um, your kids are out of the house or whether your kids are still in the house. This is an important text for us as followers of God. It helps us to understand what we are to be about. In addition to that, 
when it talks about the family of God and how we are to teach this, it is also applied to us in this room, us collectively as a local body of believers. Two weeks ago, we looked at Philippians, how Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. We look at that individually and we look at that as a church. Same thing we do with this text this morning. So when it's referencing the family, yes, it's the roof that you gather under and it is the roof that you gather in on Sunday mornings. Okay, so we're gonna take a look at what it means and how it says. Now, you know what I like to do is I like to read a little part of the verse and then explain it. Read a little part of the verse and explain it and then at the end we've got two points that we wanna make and hopefully um, God will use them in, your, in our lives this morning. So let's go ahead and start with verse four. Chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Here it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We must stop right there. It is foundational to the Israelites. It is foundational to those who call themselves followers of God to recognize and to realize that we are a part of a monotheistic faith system, meaning that there is only one God and there is nobody even close to second place. There's nobody. And he is basically coming out right from the beginning because the Egyptians were bowing down to several different gods. We would say that they're polytheistic. That's many gods. Hinduism in our day and time right now. Hinduism says there's 350 million gods. You can bow down to anyone that you want. If one's not named, you can create it, you can name it, and you can bow down to it, just be allegiant to it. That's polytheism. Many gods. So he is coming out of the gate. Moses is coming out of the gate through the inspiration of God and making sure that you and I recognize there is only one God and there is no one like him. And that's what the Ten Commandments say. You shall have no other gods before me. No graven images. He's making sure that we are vertically acknowledging that there is only one God. And then he says, once you acknowledge that there's one God, here's what I want your devotion to look like. Keep going in the next verse or the rest of four. So since he is one, this is what we should, we should be about. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. Some have tagged this the all command because, hey, I want you to love God with all your heart. I want you to love God with all your soul. And I want you to love God with all your might. It's, it's, again, a reaffirmation of our allegiance to him. That yes, there is one God, so here's how I want you to respond. I want you to give him everything that you are. I want you to give him all of yourself. He starts off with the heart, because Proverbs 4.23 says, from the heart flow the springs of life. The heart is where we have the will. That's referencing the will. Well, how is it different than the soul? The soul is our emotions. In the might, when you break down the word in Greek and Aramaic, it's basically meaning it's strength, but it's also our wealth. And so what he's coming to us and what he's saying is, is listen, I want you to love God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Basically, I want every part of your body, of your mind, of your strength to be devoted to this God who we serve. Because there's no one like him. And he's setting the stage for us to do the same. There is, there is no one like him. So he's saying, I want you to love God with your passion, with your hungers, with your perceptions and thoughts. And how we talk and how we walk. 
In, in, in addition to that, I was looking at a, 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 a guy who was writing on this verse, verse about loving God with all of our might. He said, I want you to love God with, with your spouse and, and with your children and with your house or your dorm room and your pets. And I have to be honest with you right there. I need to love Lucy better, my dog. And I want to stand before you and confess right now that she barks loudly and often and it bothers me. I am convicted and I confess that to you. <laughs> Keep going. So loving God with everything that we have, everything that we have, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might, with our strength and with our resources. When we talk about our might, we think about oh, strength and muscle. But really, the depth of that word is so beautiful. It's all your wealth. Everything that we have, we demonstrate and we show that there is one God and he is center to my life and everything in it. Then he says, okay, now we're going to put it into practice. And he goes, okay, you're going to love him. You're going to acknowledge that he's one. You're going to love him. Here's what else you're going to do. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And again, I would just make sure that we understand some of you are in here and don't have kids. Some of you are in here and your kids are gone. They're not in the home right now. But that doesn't neglect our responsibility as a collective body that have said, Northwest Community Church is my home. You've called me to be a part of this church. I want to be a part of this church. And then so it's an all-encompassing, hey, we have a responsibility to teach children. Yes, in our personal address. And yes, where we gather, all of us. He goes on to say this. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. So we have to break that down and say, who sits? Everybody, all hands should go up. Who lies down? All hands should go up. Who rises up? All hands should go up. Basically what he's telling us right now is there is an ongoing, it's not a program, it is a, it is a, proce it's a process. It is ongoing. It is as you are going, I want this to be a regular conversation with those that you are around that God is one and that you love him and that you are instructed to love him too. And I want to help you know how. I want to show you how. And so we sit down and sometimes we think, oh, we've got to sit down at the family at the table and do family devotions. Is that what it's talking about? Sure, that's what it's talking about. But it's also talking about being in the car and going from one side of Carrie to the other side of Carrie while you are throwing Chick-fil-A nuggets in their face and saying, Jesus loves you. Because if you have a van and you do not have a stain of Chick-fil-A sauce in your car, then you haven't really lived. I can guarantee you mine has more than that. But what I'm saying is, as you rise up, as you sit down, as you lay down, I mean, all of this, all of our life, while we are going, while we're going to school, while we're going here, while we're going there, it is to be talked about and communicated. Sometimes there are real intentional things that we go through where we sit down and we have a family conversation. And yes, that's part of it too. But let's not miss those daily moments of driving from here to there to press in to their hearts, the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus. And then he keeps going on. He says, here's what I want you to do. He looks at the Israel and says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He's basically telling them, I want this message to be central in your home and I want it to be central in your witness. And so what they would do, basically, 
um, he's writing to the Israelites and he's telling them, hey, listen, this is what I want you to, I want it to, I want it to be etched on your hearts. Well, the Israelites basically in the fourth century BC took this a little literal. So they made these things called phylacteries. They're basically leather cases with a little place to put parchment paper. They would write these laws or these prayers down. This, this prayer specifically, they would write it down they would put it in this little phylactery and they would wrap it around their left arm, their left arm. And they would also wrap it around their foreheads to make sure that this, these words would be ingrained into their heart, into their mind. They would even put that around their home. You and I, what is it telling us? It's telling us to, it's figurative. It, it's, we want this to be etched into your heart, etched into your mind. We want it to be obvious to those that come into your house, those that leave your house, those that are in your neighborhood, those that come and visit you whenever and however and however often, that they recognize and they realize that you believe that God is one, there is no one like him, and that your love for him is completely obvious. He's looking at the Israelites, and that's what he's instructing them to do. The Greek word for phylactery means safeguard or protection. Because what he's telling us and what he's telling them is this message that God is one, that you shall love him, and that you should teach people about him is so incredibly important that it is for your good and his glory that we do just this. And I think it's incredibly ironic that he's coming about. We have the Ten Commandments and we have 613 laws and he tells them, I just want you to love me with everything that's in you. So, so where do we go from here? Where do we take a look at the church? We've unpacked the text. We've taken a look at it. I've got two really points that I want to share with you right now in the time that we have here. Um, number, th number one thing that I want to show you is this. Is the passion for God arrives out of a love for God. The passion for God arrives out of a love for God for God, love of God. Okay, so here's what we're talking about in our mission statement is that because of this verse, we've taken a look at what it means to lead, to diligently lead a generation of, of, of gospel transformation. And when we take a look at the word passionately guiding, we have to understand where does that passion come from? Because that passion cannot come from someone who is entrenched in the world. That passion comes from a devotion to a, to a God who is, there is no one like him, and a God who we deeply love and long for. And so the passion that we have, the passion that we demonstrate when we guide, dem guide generations comes from a beautiful, beautiful relationship with him. It is an overflow of spending time with him. I, I want to point out a couple of things. This is a quote for you. It says, it's fascinating to me, it's one writer who said this, it's fascinating to me that he doesn't say, do the Ten Commandments and teach your kids to do the Ten Commandments. He didn't say, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's the code you must submit to and obey in order to teach the next generation how to be my people. No, he just says, love. And you're sitting there right now and you're probably sitting there going, Matt, okay, you want me to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, might. You're looking at me like the Israelites were looking at Moses and you're saying, that is impossible and you are exactly right. But it is possible when we see what God has given us in Jesus Christ. 
He's given us someone who fulfilled all of the law so that we could live. Not only that, he's given us his Holy Spirit as we looked at in the book of Acts. So when he's looking at them and he's saying to them at the time, he's looking at them saying, I want you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And they messed up. But it was a prediction. It was a prophecy of you're going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. That's why you need someone to come rescue you. That's why we need who Isaiah says, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. And so when you sit there and when we sit there and go, okay, I want to do that in my home. I want to do that in my church. How am I going to do that? Surrender our hearts to Jesus every single day. Every single day. And repent where we have failed and thank God for the grace that he gives to get us back on the bike and keep pedaling. I just want you to love him. He's given us everything that we need to be able to passionately guide generations. I want what is said about you and what's said about me is that men, they are passionate about Jesus. It does not happen in and through us as a person. It happens but by a beautiful transformation. A beautiful transformation that only comes through him. There are so many things that rival us about this love of God. Silly example, I absolutely love the patty melt with Texas toast cooked medium with french fries at the Salem Street Pub in downtown Apex. I have an absolute confession to you right now that I love that sandwich. I have been there on many times and looked at the menu and go, I should get the chef salad because it's really good and it's a lot better for you. But I can tell you right now, I love the patty melt more. Guarantee if you go there right now, you will be different. What I'm trying to say with you right now is what we have to do is spend our time asking the question, God, what is it that stirs up my heart to love you deeper? And that's your homework for this week. To sit down with everybody that gathers in your home, your friends, your family, your life group. What is it that will stir up my heart so that I can say there's no one like God? He is one. He's not one of many. He's the only one. And I want to love you in such a way that I'm passionately leading and guiding in my church and in my home for the glory of his beautiful name. And so I'm asking you to sit down this week and sit there and maybe write a note, put it on your phone, whatever you need to do. But ask yourself the question, what will it take for my passion for Jesus, for the love of Jesus to be stirred up in my life? What are some of the things that do that for you? And be reminded of them. I was sitting back doing this illustration this week myself. I love to listen to people preach. I just do. I, there's several people that I get on and I listen to. There's podcasts and I just listen to them and I get fired up. I love to hear that. It stirs up in me a love for God that is just refreshing to me. And I would ask you to sit and say, what is it that stirs up your love for God? I would also tell you that I'm not just going youth camp and vacation Bible school on you. It's so important that you hear this and it cannot be said enough. You must marinate in the word of God to understand the love of God so that you will love like God. 
if you're going to London and you get a cup of tea, you take a tea bag and you don't dip it in and take it out, right? You, you put the tea bag in and you let it sit there. And now what I need for you to do is I need you to camp out and soak up and sit in the beautiful word of God because when we do that, we'll know the love of God and we'll love like God. And then what happens, we can sit there and say, I am passionately guiding my generation, my, my gener- the generation that's in my home. I am guiding them out of an overflow of love for God. And I'm a part of a church that's saying all generations matter. And we want to see them come to faith in Christ. And so what, is it, what does it look like for you to sit back this week and say, God, what is it in my life that stirs up my love for you. Every single one of you can look back at times where there is something, and I want you to go back to what it is, and I want you to put those things in place so that God can raise up in you a desire and a passion to diligently, passionately, intentionally make much of Jesus in your home and in this place. Number two, guiding generations to God is our loving response. So guiding generations to God is our loving response. So here's what happens. Listen, the passion for God is, comes out of a love for God. And then all of a sudden, it comes down here and says, oh, we've got this love. We are passionate about it. So what are we going to do? We're going to guide generations. We're going to show them exactly how to do it, what to do. And we've got a lot of work here at Northwest to do that. But here's what we've done. We've organized and we've structured our staff to let someone, next generation's pastor, Adam King, to be in that role. So you'll do what? You will pray over him and for him that the spirit would lead him and that we collectively would be a place that believes that God is going to do something in all generations and we get to be a part and watch what he does. We're serious about this. I want for my kids and your kids to have the fullest life possible. And I am absolutely convinced that that's only possible in Christ and no one else. I'm completely convinced of that. This is what Matt Chandler said in uh, uh, an article. He said, it's not ultimately a victory for you to have upright moral kids who are really respectful. Ultimately, we, if ultimately we have not taught and shown a love for Christ, which is the way to the fullest life possible, which is what we want for our kids. We must understand that we are guiding our kids to something and to someone. The question we have to ask is, what are we guiding them to? And what are they guiding them with? We're guiding them. And I want you to stop and stand back and say, okay, what am I using to help guide them? What am I doing to help lead them? One of the questions I would like for you to consider in your home is maybe you're sitting here right now and you and your wife are on a really good place. If you're, you're married and in and, and whatever stage of life you're in, but you're in a really good place. I'd like for you to sit down this week and talk about how you're doing in guiding your children to gospel transformation. Our job is not to do that our job is to partner with you to help you do that and that's what we want to do in every aspect of our church and every part of our 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 things that we do on Sunday morning 
outside of Sunday, every single thing that we want to do is to help spur this up and spur you on to do just that. And so maybe, maybe you're, you're in a great place from, uh, uh, in, in your relationship with your spouse. Maybe you can sit down you can talk. Man, what would it look like for us? What have we done well? Let's thank God for the grace that he's given us. Then maybe sit down and say, what could we do better? And let's ask God to give us the spirit to, to overwhelm us with his spirit to help us to do that and do it better. But I, I recognize that some of you in here, that you're not on the same page theologically or practically about teaching your kids about God. And that's a very difficult place to be. And I want to speak to both of you, husbands and wives, about that. And dads, you're first. In the name of Jesus, get off the proverbial couch and get involved. The task is too beautiful and too important for you to sit back and watch things unfold and things happen. And not be involved. Working a job is not going to help them know Jesus no matter how much you can justify it. What they need more than anything in the world is your presence with them. It's called the ministry of presence. To sit down and to ask questions. So in the name of Jesus, get off the couch and get involved. Be passionate about God. Let us help you do that if you're struggling with that. There are a bunch of people in this church that will help you understand what it means to be a man, not a boy. So that you can sit in front of your kids and know that God is so much greater and he is so much better than any of the things that try to draw your allegiance away from him. And ladies, I, I just respectfully and boldly want to let you know something, that God can save them. He doesn't save them through nagging. And we need to be careful. No excuses given. But there's constantly things that you remind them of. Here's my, here's my encouragement to you because of the love of God and loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is to find something that, yes, he's doing well and encourage him in the name of Jesus and celebrate it. And I want us to be encouraged because this is a marathon. It's, 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 it's a marathon, not a sprint. And here's what we have to recognize. We do not save our kids, but what we are responsible to do is to diligently, intentionally, and passionately put like kindling around their hearts so that they would be on fire for Jesus. And that's our responsibility in our home and in our church. So they can be a place. And here's what takes place. Let me make sure you understand this. They are not saved by anybody but Christ in Christ alone. And we must recognize that as we lead and as we teach and get that in front of them. Let me tell you this right now. <laughs> I, I, I'm standing up here before you right now and I'm just going, oh boy. I, I, last night, I just convicted that I wanted to get up before you and be honest 
and be open because every one of us in here right now could say, I talked too ugly, I disciplined too aggressively, I was too loud, I wasn't kind, and I wasn't passionate. Please somebody say amen to that. We've all done that. And I was overwhelmed last night, so I lined all four kids on the couch. Daniel was working. I lined them all up the couch, and I said, I need you to understand me right now. I'm, in 11 hours, I'm going to stand up before our church, and I'm going to talk on diligently and pursuing the gospel among families. And so I need you to finish this statement. I need you to finish the statement. I wish you would not do blank. It crushes my spirit. And I looked at him and I said, eyeball to eyeball, go. Took a while. But we had a great conversation. And I would encourage you to sit down with your kids and say, is there something that I do that crushes your spirit? I need to know what it is. Ray and Avery Cook helped me understand this. They're friends of mine from Apex Baptist, a ministry that I was a part of for a long time. They have four girls. And um, every, Avery was a really, Avery is the guy and Ray is the girl. I just want to, <laughs> anyway, so Avery would, would come to me. He's a good friend. And he just said, Matt, um, uh, I said, tell me about what you do with your, your girls to, to, to really invest in Jesus and really help them. He told me this. Gosh, guys, it probably is 15 years ago. And so he said, well, every Monday, every Monday, um, I take a different child to school. But we go to breakfast first. I said, so every, you take it, every, everyone's different. So it's, you know, Christy and Kelly and Catherine and Kimberly and, and does that. And so a year and a half ago, I'm, I'm just, I'm giving this to you because Ray and Avery demonstrated this to me. Because one-on-one -on -one time is one of the most beautiful ways that you can get to the heart of your kids. And with a lot of kids and a lot of things going on, it's difficult for us to pause and take time one-on-one. -on -one. And I just want to let you know something. It's one of my favorite times of the week. Monday's coming. Tomorrow morning is Jake. 8, 7.45. We're headed to Chick-fil-A for the glory of God. We talk about fantasy baseball, fantasy football. Read a Bible verse and pray. Sometimes I don't read a verse. I'm not saying they're to be noble. I'm saying I've learned this and I want to pass this on to you because the time is so incredibly short and so incredibly important and God is too good for us just to coast. And what we want to be about as a church is to be focused on passionately guiding generations because when we do that, they become transformed by the glory of God for God and transformed people change the world. They don't just fill a church. They change the world. And from the generations that we have from nursery all the way up, we want to see them change the world and do our part. We are a small part of something much bigger than ourselves. And so what does this mean for us as a church? We've talked a lot this morning about doing this as an individual, as in our home, giving you some things to think about. What do we do this as a church? I'm just going to let you know, we need all hands on deck, whatever generation you are a part of, to help the next generation that's either before you or after you to, to see who God is and what, they, what we can have in Christ. We need all hands on deck. 
This is not just for the toddler moms and dads or the teenage moms and dads or the ones that have college students or the ones whose kids are out. All hands on deck for us to passionately guide generations because of the way God has sovereignly positioned and placed us that we have all of those generations represented in this beautiful place that we get to gather in called Northwest Community Church. We need older women to teach younger women. We need older men to teach younger men. Our village moms has been doing that really well. We have parents that can partner with other parents to do that. And, and, and as I finish, I just want to say that the way I grew up in terms of church ministry is this. I grew up in church ministry where it was, hey, um, if you are to die today and you're, you know that you do not have a relationship with Jesus and you would go to hell, raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus. I got a problem with that. Because I don't want us to be simply leading our generation right now to say, I want you to say yes to heaven because you don't want to go to hell. I want them to say yes to Jesus. Because when they say yes to Jesus, then what happens, we have a deep love for God that we can passionately guide others to this. Yes, it is true. If we don't have a relationship with Christ, we will not spend eternity with him. And I desperately would love for you to come to faith in Christ if you don't have a relationship with Christ. Would love for you to consider that. Would love for you to say yes to him right here, right now. After the service, would love for you to talk about that with me. But what we want more than anything in the world is to passionately guide you to gospel transformation. And the guiding part takes place when we really, really understand that there is no one like God. That we have an opportunity because of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus did to love him with all our heart, soul, and strength. And we have the grace that's extended to him that when we mess up, we say things we shouldn't say or we say them with a tone that we shouldn't say. He's there to forgive us and say, now get back on it, let's go. That's, that's encouraging. So, so where, where are we going to go? I want to just give you this as we're going to read a verse together and we're going to sing two songs here at the end. Here's what it says. Um, Jesus made a promise and said, I will build my church. And I want to encourage you with this as to where we are, where we're going, and how we're going to get there. Um, here's what he said, uh, this, this article. In A.D. 40, there was 1,000 Christians. In 100 AD, there were 10,000 Christians. In 200 AD, there were 200,000 Christians. In 300 AD, there are 5 million Christians. And in 2000 AD, there's 2.5 billion Christians. Listen, this movement of God that he's going to use his vehicle, the church, to change the world Let's make sure that what we do, we are passionately guiding people to know that there is no one like God. And it is a privilege and it is an honor to sit in whatever venue from first impressions to children to youth to small group to, to whatever the case is, to passionately guide people to know him, to love him, and to serve him with everything they have. It'll be for their good and it'll be for his glory. So as a reminder, the passion for God arrives out of our love for God and guiding generations to God is our loving response. And I have a response for you this morning. And I want to basically say that I want you to participate with me. And, and the participation is, is we're going we're gonna to quote Psalm 145 together. It talks about one generation commending to another generation the great works of God. It's passing on what we know. Psalm's coming to an end. 145 all the way to 150 is a worship declaration. And so I want us to say this together as we get ready to, to sing.
I'd love for you to just go ahead and stand. These words are on the screen. We haven't practiced this. It may not be perfect, but we're going to declare Psalm 145, part of it together. And let's go ahead and see what it says. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the mighty work, awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Let us as a generation declare the beauty, the sovereignty, the majesty of God to all generations. And let's do that passionately when we love when we love and our, and our love for him is allegiant to him and him only. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, as the band comes out right now, we just pause and we recognize that there is no one like you. We recognize, God, that you are, are in this stage of our church, you're trying to get us focused and we desperately need you and need your help to do that. We, we need the lens of your spirit. We need the lens of the word we need your guiding to guide us so that we can guide others. Before we can guide others, God, I pray that you would birth in us a dynamic, passionate love for you. Help us to know you. Help us to submit to you. Help us to surrender to you. And help us to recognize that there is no one like you. So God, give our church focus and give us direction. Help us to see who you would have us to be. And we desire to do this, not for our name or for our fame. We desire to do this for you and you alone. So lead us and guide us. We sing to you because you deserve it. We love you and we thank you for all you have done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.